My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Friends and listeners, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, bringing you another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. Ugh. Before we go too much further today, I have to start with something of a correction. I have a lot of loyal listeners. A past guest suggested that I call you all Eumenidites, just like my own league of Swifties or Beliebers or what have you. But if you listen to my last few episodes, my guests and I have brought up Rebecca the Musical, which failed to get on Broadway due to many scandals. So go back and listen to episode 18, or sorry, 19 to get caught up on that. But in my last episode on K-Pop the Musical, I hinted in my intro that Rebecca may be seeing the light of day again in English-speaking markets, and that we'd get to that in the episode. I'm realizing we never did that. My guest Richard Jordan and I did talk a lot about it, but that was one of the things I had to cut for the sake of time. But here's what I do know, and it's not much, but it is straight from the mouth of Richard Jordan, who probably wouldn't be telling me about it if it were only a rumor. It sounds like there is some buzz in the UK to make Rebecca happen again, first in the West End, and if it's successful there, it could finally see its way to Broadway. Sounds like the production team might be scaling things down a bit, but nonetheless, the mystery continues. Oh, I can't wait to see what happens with it. Now, as I've done on my last few episodes, I want to acknowledge some new places where I'm seeing new listeners, so... Hello, New Zealand! Andra, the woman who walks beside me, has long said she'd love to visit. So, New Zealand, reach out if you'd like to have me come down under for an in-person episode. I'd also like to say hello to my listeners in the Netherlands. Great to have you with us, and I'd love to see the canals of Amsterdam sometime, so let me know if you'd like to have an in-person episode someday. I'm eager to travel. <laughs> but until I can do that, I'll just keep bringing you episodes here, and today's is a great one. The first time I heard about this topic was years ago, and I wasn't quite sure how to put it into a full story, but I had lined up my guests already, the co-hosts of the High Tailing Through History podcast, sisters Laurel Rockle and Katie Wall. Laurel has been on the show before, joining me for episodes 36 and 37, where we discuss some of the most monumental flops in commercial theater history, and I don't know if I've ever heard somebody say, oh no, as many times as she did in the couple hours that we recorded that. <laughs> and I got to go on their show last year. Oh man, that was such a blast. Discussing the history of popular Roman entertainment and the world of professional wrestling. Because it's all theater, isn't it? We're watching stories unfold, whether it's a gladiator being eviscerated by a lion or Triple H threatening his would-be foes and their spouses, right? 
I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. So once you're done here, you can go give their show a download or two. Anyway, regarding this episode, I had no idea that the topic would be so near and dear to them and probably all of us. Today, we talk about the origin of Peter Pan and how that character first appeared on stage. So without further ado, here's today's show, the premiere of Peter Pan. That whole month of Indigenous Peoples Month, November 2022, y'all did a great series. Like every episode was specifically about some wacky story in Indigenous uh, history. And and oh, my God, the one you were telling about uh, Crazy Horse, I'm like, you're talking about my freaking backyard. <laughs> really? <laughs> Like, um, yeah, you know, when you're talking about uh, Little Bighorn, that is literally an hour from my house. And oh, man. Like, yeah, he he was stomping the hills all over here. Um, so, <laughs> you know, you're describing it. I'm like, that's down the street. Yeah. Uh, me, I'd be driving in my car, sitting, listening to it, then driving to the next spot. Because <laughs> I'm a nerd that way. Yeah, yeah. And if you ever get out this way, you got to get out to the Crazy Horse Monument and out there in uh, South Dakota. It's really cool. It's only about three hours right. away from here, but I'm good Lord. To. Yeah. But um, you had uh, a rather fortuitous thing. You had somebody reach out to you who has a particular claim to fame in that arena yeah, well, Aaron, we're big time now. We've had <laughs> no, uh, we, no uh, Dr. Darren Reed, a professor of history and the course director at Coventry University in England, reached out when he saw those episodes on Indigenous history. And he said, this is what I teach. This is what I do. If you'd ever love to have a guest to talk about those things, you know, by all means, I'm available. And oh, uh, wow. I was like, yeah, would you like to come talk to us, please? Because right, be amazing. <laughs> and we had such an amazing time with him. He was brilliant, and he made the lessons really real. You know, he wasn't mm -hmm. uh, you know, talking yeah, yeah, at yeah, you yeah, and yeah. teaching you. So it was very, very engaging. And uh, yeah, it ended up being one of our fastest growing episodes Whew. yet. So, yeah, well, awesome. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. So, my friends and listeners, if you haven't already started to follow Hightailing Through History, I would recommend it. They have a lot of episodes out now, a lot of cool topics. And if you like to just sit and get a little buzz on while you're uh, getting some mm -hmm. history talked at you, um, this is a perfect place to do it. Uh, so, uh, Katie and Laurel... Um, uh, Laurel, this is your second time on the show. Katie, your first time. And I got to have some fun with you on an episode. Oh, my God, that was so fun. I don't know how you uh, – we could have gone on and talked all night about that. Uh, we ended up speaking almost three hours about gladiator combat, wrestling, women's wrestling, <laughs> wrestling as entertainment. Wrestling. We loved it. We had so much fun with that. But yeah, I, 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 I chatted with the other day. I said, hey, why don't you come on the show again? I got a great topic. And I was in the middle of writing something. And then uh, uh, my younger son has a band concert. And I invite my mother. She wasn't able to come to the last one. My mother is a huge Jeopardy fan, y'all. Oh, and this is a thing with her and her sisters. And when my dad was still alive, they, like they would talk about who was still the champion dad would keep in mind, like how much money they had made the previous day. And, and uh, I mean, it, it, it was like their baseball trading season. It was so great. So as we're sitting there waiting for the concert, my mom springs this one on me. 
On February 9th, 2023, the game show Jeopardy had theater history as a category for Final Jeopardy. And oh this was the final answer of the episode. Did you watch this the other day? No, 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 oh, I didn't. Okay, okay. I didn't, but I just got excited about the topic. Okay, here we go. I'm going to see if you can get this. In 1904, wearing a harness, actress Nina Busico became the first to play this character on stage. You're going to know this one, Katie. It's Peter Pan, isn't it? Peter Pan! <laughs> I mean, excuse me, who is Peter Pan? Yes, correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Only one of the three contestants got that right. What? <laughs> really? I'm actually surprised by that because the harness, I feel, gives a lot away there. Well, exactly. I mean, uh, what other parts could that be? Like, no, I'm sorry. I mean, I mean the, the <laughs> other one I could think of is maybe like Glinda the Good Witch, but... The Wizard of Oz hadn't been written by that point. Oh, 1906, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah anyway, that's true. Okay. So there we go. When we think of Peter Pan on stage, we think of that, right? A, a you know, athletic young woman playing a young boy in green, yep. you know, flying around on stage, right? Full of utter mischief. Full of <laughs> utter mischief and pluck. Yeah. And it was many, many years ago that I was an after-school co- coordinator for a drama program, and we are in the middle of rehearsing our play. And it usually came about somewhere in the middle of my rehearsal that the spring musical, who was directed by somebody else, got announced. So the kids got really excited about the show that was coming up. And they come running into me one day, and they go, we're going to do Peter Pan. And I looked at them, and I turned around, and I looked at my stage that does not have rigging for picking anybody up. <laughs> And I looked at them all and I go, cool. How? Right. (laughs) And the way that they did it, oh my God. You could see these two cables coming straight down from the ceiling and they were uh, attached to anchors that were masked by stuffed animals in the nursery. So, uh, you know, the the stuffed animals are sitting in front of these anchors. And so when a character, Peter Pan, stands in front of the stuffed animal and Wendy comes over and you know, very slyly bends over and takes the clasp off the anchor so it could be attached to Peter Pan's harness. <laughs> it did not look natural at all. Oh, high school theater, you know, it's so good. And then to fly, they they projected images of the stars and the clouds like going away from you while Peter Pan was raised like three feet off the ground and just arms straight out. And I'm like, how magical. Oh, <laughs> The magic of flight. We have all seen it with our eyes on the stage tonight. Three feet off the floor. <laughs> Levitation. <laughs> but this might shock you to hear that Peter Pan first appeared on stage long before the literary version of Peter Pan was fully fleshed out in books and novels. Oh, really? Yep. That's what we're going to be talking about today. The strange history of the creation of Peter Pan. Oh my God, I'm so here for it. <laughs> I've just been watching Katie's face just like, just light up and the excitement just flow over it. I I hope I'm not going to kill some heroes here for you. I might. This is a weird story. It's... It'll probably make it better, honestly. <laughs> okay, good, good. <laughs> so Peter Pan actually first appeared in a novel for adults called The Little White Bird. Have you heard of that? No but I have a feeling where this is going. (laughs) (laughs) So as we, I think we're all familiar, Peter Pan was created by the novelist J.M. Barrie, also known as Jimmy. Uh, I'll be referring to him as several different things throughout this thing. 
But by the time that this was written in, uh, I want to say that, uh, yeah, 1902, Barry was in his early 40s. He was married and already had some fame as a writer at the turn of the century. Peter Pan was actually a character of a story within the story of that novel, The Little White Bird. But this version of Peter is kind of a prototype and only has a few of the characteristics we know and love. Okay. This Peter did run away from home when he was an infant. And does fly into children's bedrooms at, at night. <laughs> Sorry. Two, two for two there. <laughs> Don't worry about it. He's in, in your house. It's okay. <laughs> However, this version of Peter was actually something of a villain. In the story, one week after being born, Peter crawled out of his nursery window, thinking that his mother will just always keep the window open for him in anticipation of his return, regardless of how long he intends to stay away. When he returns to the window years later, never having aged a day, he sees his mother cuddling a new baby and takes that to mean that his mother's love is purely conditional, not unconditional, and that he has been forgotten or lost. Ouch. Oh. Mm-hmm. So you can see how we're kind of like, okay, this is a little darker, and they did kind <laughs> of sugar it up for the novel. And this is where we get his compatriots. The Lost Boys. As the story goes, the Lost Boys are all baby boys who, <laughs> I think this is a quote directly from the book, fall out of their prams when the nurse is looking the other way, and if they are not claimed in seven days, they are sent far away to the Neverland. Shit. Look, those are just the rules, man. <laughs> <laughs> those are the rules. I don't make them. Yeah. Lost. They're in, like, lost and found purgatory. Yeah, exactly. Um. So they're... <laughs> They're infants, uh -huh. not boys. The terrifying notion of a bunch of flying babies, you know? <laughs> and a baby flying into your house, like, right, you know, right above your bed. Just flies in there. Where are the children? <laughs> oh, um, man, I'd hit it with a broom so fast. <laughs> <laughs> so Peter becomes their leader, and they all vow to never grow up. But if any of them do, Peter, quote, thins them out, which is not fully explained, but it is implied that they are either banished or... Peter simply kills them. Yeah. If you show any signs of growing up. Oh, no. I got my first <laughs> armpit hair. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. And why the little white bird? That's because it said that how Peter could fly was by transforming into a small white bird to get from place to place. And somewhere in there, he also rode a goat. <laughs> What do you think, babe? Should we take, should we be the little white dove or we take the goat tonight? A like, mm, little less bumpy if we transmogrify. Uh, <laughs> and rather than Neverland, Peter's headquarters is in Kensington Gardens Park, where J.M. Barry would take long walks quite often. Okay, Katie's dead. <laughs> it's one of the few places I think I've been. Isn't that in London, Laurel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where J.M. Barry would actually hang out quite a bit. He had a house there with his wife and uh, would just go and walks in that park quite often. And apparently it just ended up being the headquarters for the initial version of Peter Pan. So here we have this famous author with a neat character that people actually went crazy for. They didn't so much care about the rest of the story of The Little White Bird. Like I said, it's a story within a story. They just love the story that the narrator told to a young boy and his brothers. And by the way, 
the rest of the plot of The Little White Bird can be seen as a grown man deceitfully becoming friends with a young boy. Here's a quote. The narrator befriends a boy named David by pretending to have a son who died so he can better create empathy with the boy's parents. As David's mother, Mary, is deceived, the narrator is shown as particularly excited. This allows him to take David utterly from her and make him his own. So he's a pedophile. <laughs> I think he just wants a little boy. Oh, okay. I totally went the wrong direction with that then. <laughs> I was immediately like, grooming. Sorry, Laurel. Apparently I came way too hard out of the gate with that one. Oh no, oh no. You're going exactly where I wanted at least one of you to go. So <laughs> would have been me. <laughs> so this Peter Pan story within the uh, in The Little White Bird enraptured adults as this was a time of great adventure fiction like Robert Louis Stevenson, who was also a good friend of Barry's and Stevenson's book, Treasure Island. You know, people were really into these big adventurous uh, uh, stories back then. So they were really hungry for this kind of content. And the mythology behind Peter was really fascinating. So fascinating that theater producer, Charles Froman, he loved the story so much on his first reading he commissioned J.M. Barry to turn it into a play, and Barry gladly took him up on the offer. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you're like, oh, okay, I guess you didn't like the rest of the book about, you know, the uh, potential child grooming. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do that story another time, I suppose. Froman loved the idea so much that he would act out parts from the play on the street to get people excited. Oh. On his own. It's really precious. Oh, just a one one man one act. <laughs> I, I think I think it was more like he's going around town getting buzz about it, and and people are like, "Well, what's it like?" And he's like, "Oh, let me show you." And he jumps up on a bench. Oh, okay. and he's like, "I am the boy who'll never grow up." And you know, people are like, "Well, that sounds fun." Okay, <laughs> as theater producers are wont to do, apparently. Yeah, that's not the case. <laughs> Barry managed to stretch out his short story within a story into a full-length play, and audiences absolutely loved it. It premiered on December 27th, 1904 at the Duke of York's Theater in the West End. And going back to the information that I began this episode with, this first production was the one that began the tradition of having a woman play Peter Pan, since Peter has often been depicted as a preteen or early teenage boy. Thus, a petite woman has often played the role on stage, as she would have a voice that could resemble a, uh, that of a young man whose voice had not changed due to puberty, but could also be mature enough as an actor to be able to give the appearance of graceful flight. So, you know, like, like has some actual dance training and can do kind of cool things when suspended in air three feet off the ground. <laughs> but while those reasons make sense, there are other reasons a woman needed to play Peter. First... It was actually illegal for children to be on stage at the time. Problematic. Yeah. <laughs> In a play about children. <laughs> a little bit. How do we do that? Yeah. Uh, so having a younger man play Peter would not have worked, but... Also putting Peter Pan in line with the genre known as the Christmas pantomime, I actually got to do an episode of uh, another podcast called The History of European Theater, and we talked all about Christmas pantos, so if you want to go back and listen to that, it's, it's it was great. But in pantomime, or like I said, they're, they're also called pantos, there are several expected stock characters, and one of them is the principal boy, who in pantos, going back generations, has always been played by a woman. So in 1904... 
Peter Pan has become one of these regular Christmas pantos that seem to circle around every few years in British theater circuits. And so Peter Pan is always played by a woman in those because he's the principal boy. Anyway, just a little bit more about this original production before we continue. In The Little White Bird, several of the Lost Boys are given names, but it is also mentioned that Peter Pan has a friend named... Tinkerbell? Tinkerbell! Tink. And I think in the novel, they didn't really flesh out what Tinkerbell was or is, but they did mention that when Peter flew back to see his mother cuddling another baby, he was accompanied by fairies and birdies, I think is how they put it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, Typical entourage. Yeah. I remember, I don't know if this if this goes back to the next, I actually own the novel. Oh, um, Peter and Wendy? Um, is that what it's called? It's on my Google books. I'm going to be honest with you because I, not to sound terrible, but it was my reading when I was, um, on the throne. Um, <laughs> sounds so bad. <laughs> I thought it said about Tinkerbell was being born of his first laugh when he was a child. Oh, or something I, think, like that. I think that I is true. That too, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I remember that. And I was like, Oh, that's so happy. But it, Oh, I remember where it is. It's in it's in the movie Hook. Uh, oh. The, the, oh, it's so wonderful. Um, HBO Max movie. has got it right now. Oh yeah, okay. Don't try to do it, Laurel. Dances with Wolves will start. <laughs> if you turn on your HBO, you're screwed. The long version too, right? The four hour one. Yes, yeah. probably. Oh. <laughs> um, but in Hook, the, I think it's Wendy who says uh, the legend goes: when the first baby laughed for the first time, it broke into a thousand pieces, and that's the creation of fairies. I love yeah. that. Okay. Adorable. Adorable. <laughs> so precious. I get the feeling something's going to happen here. <laughs> we'll keep that tinsel on there for now. But um, okay. but as far as uh, Tinkerbell's first, um, first appearance, she hasn't really changed all that much since her original conception. But in the original play, she was played by a hand mirror off stage that was reflecting a shot of light on like oh. the back of the uh, on the backdrop or something. And her voice was provided nice. by like a series of, you know, little bells and chimes and stuff. So just mm -hmm. like just like in the the animated Disney movie. Here's something interesting. When Barry first wrote the script for the play, guess who was not in the script? Captain Hook. Captain Hook. Captain Hook was not. <laughs> you and I immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Barry saw Peter Pan as enough of an antagonist for himself because he was so mischievous and could cause just complete chaos for himself that he would just have to fix. He could. He, he's like, yeah, he's trouble enough on his own. He doesn't need an antagonist. However... Captain Hook was written in because Barry needed to close the curtain for an extensive set change. Like it was going to take several minutes for a set change. And rather than waste everyone's time while the set was changed, Barry wrote in a scene on a pirate ship. As pirates were just one of the groups of adults that Peter and the Lost Boys fought in Neverland. So that's Captain Hook. I, I like there that. <laughs> just in there for a scene change. Yeah. What are you going to do? Just throw some pirates up there. Everybody loves some pirates. Just get a ship. And yep. here we go. And it kind of accidentally caught fire because Hook was in the production that actually made it to the stage. It just wasn't in the uh, original uh, draft of the play. And his performance by actor Gerald Du Maurier was noted as one of the favorite aspects of the production. Check this big oh. quote out. This is great. When Hook first paced his quarterdeck in the year of 1904, 
Children were carried screaming from the stalls. How he was hated with his flourish, his poses, his dreaded diabolical smile, that ashen face, those blood red lips, the long, dank, greasy curls, the sardonic laugh, the maniacal scream, the appalling courtesy of his gestures, end quote. Oh, I love a villain, but this guy sounds... He went all out, man. Yeah, he sounds spectacular. Yeah. I couldn't think of the word. He did extra credit on that assignment. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Yeah. The director's like, uh, just be menacing. Yeah. Okay. He's right. like, oh, I got you. Oh, I you can, got it. I can do menacing. <laughs> I mean, I think about that. Like, it's, it's this great character who's, you know... Like he's part barbarian and part fop. Yeah. You know? Yes. <laughs> like he's absolutely vicious and awful and horrible, but thinks he has this dignity and mm-hmm. has to wear this flashy costume all the time. And yeah. So terrifying. <laughs> I love it. And the. <laughs> I love when I read stuff like that. It's like when you read in the Bible that there was uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I've never been in a state myself where I got that upset. <laughs> where, well, no, what is it? It's beating of breasts and gnashing yes, of teeth. Yes. Where you're just, I lost, I lost, I lost. And I just think of these children, like terrified, screaming. The parents are like, Jesus, Lucy, just calm your shit. <laughs> And it's just the description. It, it does surprise me that there's something that upsetting to yeah. children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. We're, we're going to get into that a little bit later. This hook actually began the tradition of the same actor playing both Hook and the children's father, Mr. Darling. Yeah. They said it was for practical purposes. It's long been said that this is more to fully utilize the actor, but there are other thematic reasons that we'll get into later. The response to the play. People loved it. It ran for years on the West End with several several actors stepping in to play Peter over the years. It went to Broadway. It eventually came quite a thing for a young woman to have that on a resume. I played Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, and for Barry, this helped him realize something of a calling in that he had a literary character that was now becoming somewhat famous. And he wanted to make sure that that character would be around for a long time afterward. So... Barry went back to the drawing board and didn't really reinvent Peter Pan, but he just more wanted to develop him fully in novels. Okay. So thus we get the first fully fleshed out Peter Pan novel, your bathroom book, (laughs) Peter and Wendy in 1911. (laughs) And that's, that was where he started uh, the, the more, you know, the bigger one that, that we all kind of know today. It is From here that we get our basic understanding of the lore of Peter Pan and how he would abscond with the children of the Darling family, Wendy, John, and Michael. And they would have terrific adventures fighting Captain Hook and his pirates in Neverland along Peter's associates, Tinkerbell and the Lost Boys. Okay? I think I'm describing it like how everybody understands it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? I would say so. And this novel was eventually adapted into the stage musical that featured Mary Martin and Kathy Rigby in the title roles, and uh, as well as the very beloved 1953 animated version from Walt Disney Studios, plus countless other adaptations, Mm -hmm. prequels and series about just the Lost Boys and stuff like that. While Barry gave the world 
one of its most beloved fantasy characters, Barry's legacy with Peter Pan in the real world is actually quite fantastic. Here's a big quote. In 1929, Barry generously allocated the rights to Peter Pan to Britain's Great Ormond Street Hospital, a bequest that was confirmed after his death in 1937. And for years, every Peter Pan-related production, whether a book, movie, musical, or TV show, earned money for the children's hospital. Oh, that's wonderful. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That was one of those ones that I was like, oh, man. Wait a minute. (laughs) Oh, man, what? No, in in a good thing. It just... Oh, okay. That it comes back around for... Because to me, it is a story written... Yes, for adults, but primarily for children, probably because I, and Laurel knows this, but because I just connected with it at such a young age, Mm. it's just nice that it actually goes back, actual proceeds of it went back actually to children. Oh, yeah. And essentially, isn't it orphans as well? Didn't it go? I think think it has has something to do with that. Like, that's the children's hospital where orphans go. I think. Mm -hmm. I'm not entirely certain on that. But, yeah, I think something I thought that's what it was when I looked it up. And I remember I was like, well, that is just so fitting Yeah. for, you know, someone who gives a home to children who don't have one kind of thing. Right. Absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of the shiny side of things you know we've talked about this wonderful character being created and proceeds going to sick orphans here it comes now let's ruin everything you know about it of course i wouldn't really be mentioning this on this program if there wasn't a flip side to this rather shiny coin yes there are some very dark things to consider about how barry created this work so strap in kids here we go buckle up buttercup (laughs) if you couldn't have already guessed it jm barry had A fascination with aging and dying. Yeah, there's a theme. Okay, I mean, we've got this kid who's like, you know, uh, I mean, if I grow up, then I have to die someday. So I'm just going to decide to never grow up and then I don't have to die. That that was the very childlike understanding. And wouldn't it be nice if you could just go, nope, I'm putting a stopper on that clock. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's what happened. When Barry was six years old, he had an older brother, David, who was 14, or or might have been 13. While ice skating one day, David fell through the ice and drowned, and his body was recovered. This may have been J.M. Barry's first brush with death. Mm -hmm. Little Jimmy was fascinated by the idea that when his brother died, his appearance would never change. But Jimmy and everyone else who lived on would grow older. It put that idea in his mind. What if someone could simply refuse to age? Yeah, kind of sad. But uh, here's, uh, okay, here's where we're going to start going. uh, Weird flex, but okay. (laughs) He didn't really take death too well. Here's a quote. Barry's mother openly favored David over all her other children. When David died, James literally tried to fill his brother's shoes. He would dress up in his brother's clothes and act like him to try to make his mother happy. End quote. Oh, no. I said I wasn't going to say, oh, no. <laughs> it's such a kid's way of understanding it, though. Like, maybe yeah. it's because yeah. I myself have never grown up. <laughs> but it's just one of those things where it's like, that makes sense. That's his mm-hmm. short line mm-hmm. reasoning to mom is sad. I'm going to make her feel better because right. she loved David so much. If I bring David back, she'll feel better. Right. Especially as a right. six or seven year old. Mm-hmm. It's such a 
child's way of thinking about it. But as an adult, you're like, oh, yeah, my heart just breaks. This poor kid. Cringe. Mm. Well, you know, that's that's an interesting spin on it, because uh, as we'll find out later, you know, he wrote most of the stuff for Peter Pan with children. That's a big chunk I'm going to get into later. But yeah, uh, taking that like, well, what do you think of this problem? Oh, this is an easy fix. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. This wasn't the only time that Jimmy touched death. Here's just a stat. Barry didn't actually publish the play until 1929, so you could take it home and read it. He and, and between the time he kept tweaking it and reworking things for the play, Barry was one of ten siblings, and in 1929, when he published this play, only one of those siblings was still alive. Oof. Oh my god, <laughs> that is a terrible birth to life ratio, right there. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. I mean, you know, it's all, like it's often said for those big families, you'd have to have, you know, seven to ten kids because four of them were going to get, you know, cholera, diphtheria, or, yeah. you know, fall down the wrong manhole or something like that. And... Yeah. <laughs> if they go on the Oregon Trail, they'll get dysentery. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Novelist D.H. Lawrence had this to say about J.M. Barry in 1921. J.M. has a fatal touch for those he loves. They die Shit, this poor guy, he's lost most of his family. And then all of a sudden, like, uh-huh. one of his fellow writer buddies is going to be like, dude, you're you're the angel of death. And you're like, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh. I'm already in my grief. <laughs> thank you for pointing it out. You're not the angel of death. You just had to run a bad luck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, fatality is a thing. It just happens. It is. It just happens to happen more frequently around you, J.M., and uh, we're not we're not pointing fingers we're just saying we're just saying uh hey you want some more proof that barry had some weird stances on death okay yeah here's a cutting from the little white bird peter was so full of wrath against grown-ups who as usual were spoiling everything that as soon as he got inside his tree he breathed intentionally quick short breaths at the rate of about five to a second he did this because there is a saying in Neverland that every time you breathe, a grown-up dies. And Peter was killing them off vindictively as fast as possible. Peter, do you need a timeout? He is taking one. He is certainly <laughs> taking one. A homicidal timeout. Yeah. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to breathe and kill all these adults because they're ruining my life. Ugh. Dude, same. I know. Grown-ups suck sometimes, but yeah. terrifying. I'm so glad I'm not a parent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. And remember, one of Peter's famous quotes is, to die would be an awfully big adventure. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. There's there's J.M. Barry on death. Okay. And, it's uh, so funny how differently, and this is going to sound crazy, because, again, like, when I was little, Peter Pan was like, it's not very imaginary, but was like my imaginary friend. I would, mm. Laurel, Laurel tells these stories. I don't remember them, but she says I used to run and watch my shadow with my arms out as a little kid. Oh, yeah. It was the cutest thing. Apparently I was adorable, which doesn't surprise me. But, um, <laughs> but I had like such, I just, I loved Peter. I think probably because he could fly away from all his troubles, whereas I could oh, not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny because how I experienced death as a child peter pan actually made it better for me oh because that whole to die would be an awfully big adventure made me less afraid of it which is funny because barry jimmy had a frigging complex about it whereas i (laughs) lost all fear of it at all (laughs) it was one of those things i was like it can't be that bad i mean you know being an artist 
I talk about it on the show a lot, like the idea of making your circumstances the same as the characters. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm very critical of the method style of acting. It does work for some people and that's fine, but there's a lot to unpack if if you're putting yourself in the actual circumstances of like a homeless person and you live that way for several months, look, it'll do damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'll I'll tell this one story. I did an uh, an audition in Seattle years and years ago where the director didn't really give us like a baseline or anything. He says, but you're all gangsters. Okay. And go. And we're like, all right. Like 1920s? See, I go yeah, 1920s yeah. and then I'm like, yeah, okay. see? And people are like, wait, what are you doing? That, <laughs> right. Oh, that's exactly, that's exactly, I think what he wanted. And so this is like right, right in the middle of Sopranos time, right? Like, oh, everybody knows what being a gangster is like and how, how the mob conducts its business and stuff. And so just in our conversation, and I was kind of leading it because the other guys were not, they, they really didn't understand what to do. I'm like, well, we got to create a storyline here, so let's go. And so I picked one guy out who's not really clicking with everybody. And I'm like, you're a rat. <laughs> and, oh. and eventually we all like kind of just glommed onto this guy just real slowly. And we're like, oh, you're a rat and we're going to kill you. And, and I'm looking around at everybody else and I'm like, okay, we got to kill him. We have to actually kill this guy now. And it was going to be fake and everything, but nobody's doing it. So I finally went, oh, okay. So take out an invisible knife. And I stabbed this guy like six times and he goes down and he l- plays dead. And the director goes, okay, very good. Um, I'll call you. And I got in the car and I'm driving home and my hands are shaking on the steering wheel because I'm like, I just drove myself to kill a person. I made myself get so wrathful. I could kill a person. Oh my God. <laughs> and it shook me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, when, when you're expressing when you're an artist and you're expressing things, you're getting off some of those things that like maybe are too big to feel. And so I'm thinking of J.M. Barry and I'm thinking he's got this thing about death. Like it, it really lingered in his mind for a while. He's just getting off that little bit of maybe the nice advice that he can't follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. That, that was a very roundabout way to get to that. Okay. <laughs> Love the story. about all I can say so far. I hope you're not totally turned off to Peter Pan yet, but I'm going to keep trying. (laughs) Just kidding. Like Katie, I think knowing the history behind it makes us appreciate Peter Pan even more. And hey, those episodes from the History of European Theater podcast I mentioned, I've included those in the show notes for this episode as well. Host Philip Rowe does impeccable research for his show, and the episodes are usually pretty short, and you just feel a lot smarter after listening. So go give him some downloads too. Oh, and also feel free to follow me on Instagram, where I'm dropping extra content about the episodes, something I started to do since episode 50, and I like the trend. So feel free to find out what you didn't know. But for now, let's continue the story of the premiere of Peter Pan. So, I did say that J.M. Barry was married. Oh, yeah. How's this working out? Well, Jimmy married actress Mary Ansel in 1894 after a brief friendship in which she nursed him back to health when he fell ill. I can't remember exactly how they met. I think, you know, they're in the theater world. So, you know, he had a few plays before he even started thinking of Peter Pan. And I think he was looking for actors to play in them. She showed up. Sparks, I guess. Okay. 
Yeah. However, it was not a very happy relationship. Frankly, there was no physical intimacy in the relationship at all. Kind of thought that's where that was going to go. Yeah. And that led to rumors of homosexuality, even though there was no evidence to follow that up. Some claim he just wasn't interested. <laughs> and before getting in the Peter Pan business, he, he actually wrote a satirical play viciously criticizing the institution of marriage. So many people think he may have married out of social pressures, you know, to be a single man at the turn of the century and you're wealthy. Like, what are you doing if you're single? Whatever I want. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not for everybody. And there's also, you know, asexual no. people have always existed and stuff. Yes. You know, so it's like. Mm -hmm. yeah, I was going to say, I figured he was more along those lines, but. Oh, God. I'm very interested to see where you think this goes. <laughs> okay, back to the marriage. Um, it's also suggested that these long walks I mentioned in Kensington Gardens, um, uh, they were all about getting out of the house to avoid marital duties. Mm -hmm. If I just leave, I don't have to husband. Doesn't that sound like Peter Pan? If I just decide I won't grow up, I won't. Yeah. Oh, I'll get to more on these walks in a moment, but I need to put an end to this marriage first. So here we go. <laughs> Barry sued for divorce in 1909. So they've been married 15 years. As Mary had started an affair with Gilbert Callan, who was about 20 years younger than her. Oh, my. And he was in the theater world, too. In fact, uh, I think Barry and Callan worked on some anti-censorship stuff, like uh, some lobbying or, you know, just some activism. And so he was around them all the time. <laughs> oh, OK. And well. Barry, Barry had no idea oh. that his wife and this younger guy were like, hey. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I mean, he wasn't interested. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> Barry actually initially offered Mary just a separation if she would promise to never see Callan again. She refused. And Barry was granted the divorce. In the divorce proceedings, Mary admitted that her marriage to J.M. Barry had never been consummated. Well. Well, there you, yeah. there you go. I mean, there it is. <laughs> I loved the backlash and outcry in society to the Stanley Kubrick movie Eyes Wide Shut when it was revealed that Nicole Kidman's character has a sex drive. Yeah. Oh, God, heaven forbid. And, Female pleasure. Yeah, you know? and everybody was like, I can't what a... Argh. Okay, so let's get back to uh, right. uh, Mary and J.M. Barry. Um, Mary, yes... She became Mary Berry. <laughs> Mary Berry eventually married Gilbert Callan, but eventually Gilbert suffered a mental breakdown and had an affair with their maid, which resulted in a pregnancy. Oh, my God. As soon as Mary found out about this, she was granted a separation and then a divorce in 1917. Oh, shit, girl. She had a run of bad luck. Oh, oh, God. Gilbert went off to live with the maid and her husband, and they lived as a thruple. It's a lot going on. 1917 Thruple. It was. I was leaning here. I was like, oh, my God, there's a lot of moving pieces right now. Mary was actually taken care of by Jimmy financially until he died in 1937. So another 20 years after they divorced in his will, he left her a thousand pounds as a cash payment in 1937 and an annuity of 600 pounds, which she could invest however she choose. Wow. What yeah. is that, like $2 million in today's money? <laughs> I, I was going to say, it's sizable. <laughs> it's it's like sizable. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. didn't leave her high and dry, that's for sure. Yeah. And he actually uh, built her a villa in France so she could kind of, like, escape. Wow. And that's where she lived, like, the rest of her life. 
That was very generous. Uh-huh. Yeah. In the in their divorce proceedings in 1909, Jimmy admitted that he was still in love with his wife. And after their divorce, they still mm-hmm. corresponded frequently. And really, in that situation, I look at it and I go, I think they were better besties than lovers. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's like he still loved her, but more like kind of like Freddie Mercury and also Mary. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Love that relationship. Oh, okay. So back to these long walks in Kensington Gardens, which oh, is yes. really, they are really actually very much responsible for the creation of Peter Pan. On these walks, Barry first met a young boy named George Llewellyn Davies playing with his brothers in a park in 1898. It soon became a frequent thing that Barry would hang out with young George, his mother, Sylvia, and George's brothers, John, also known as Jack, Peter, Michael, and Nicholas, who also was known as Nico. Okay. Okay. All right. We're seeing some some origin story here. Okay. It was from these frequent meetings with them in Kensington Gardens that the lore of Peter Pan was developed, as Barry would often play with the boys as they were pretending and, you know, doing little boy stuff. And uh, and along with him would invent the many facets of the Peter Pan uh, mythos, you know, the fairies, pirates, flight, not growing up. So it was that Barry just had this acumen for writing but would sit down with these kids and they're like, okay, so you're fighting who I'm fighting a pirate. And my fairy is pulling his hat down over his eyes. Ooh, that's really good. (laughs) So all all, the family, they all would just make this up together. Before I continue about the story with the boys though, I have to address one ugly thing about this world, um, uh, which is something that you two have spent a significant amount of time discussing in your show, the representation of native Americans in the arts and history. Uh, Mm. You get to it eventually. Oh, here we go. Mm -hmm. I can't really tell you who came up with this, but there is another group of adults at the Lost Boys fight in Neverland. A Mm -hmm. tribe of natives. Oh, I I hate that the word is going to come out of my mouth here a few times. Tribe of natives called the Piccaninny tribe. Yeah. Now... While the Disney version is abhorrently racist against Native Americans, even including the song, What Makes the Red Man Red? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know. Anytime it comes on, I'm like a fainting goat. I like. Hey, I haven't seen it on Disney Plus, but I understand that like, um, you know, now that Disneyland and Disney World have taken out Splash Mountain for a little while to reinvent it because Song of the South was so problematically racist in its time. Mm-hmm. And it still still is. And they're redoing it with um, uh, Princess and the Frog stuff. Yeah. So Splash mm-hmm. Mountain is going to come Tiana. back. It's gonna, yeah. Um, but uh, I, I understand that when you watch it on Disney Plus. They have a uh, title screen that comes on before it and says, "Watch what on Disney Plus? Song of the South." It's not on there. It's not on. Oh God! Okay, I'll look right now. But, but if I don't you go to like Aladdin, for example, Aladdin has it the beginning Aladdin of theirs has too. It. Yeah. Peter where, Pan has it. Yeah. The, where they have this. Okay, I haven't seen mm-hmm. it, but yeah. yeah, it's like a little screen that says this is at a time when people were really stupid about race or something like that. Well, like, and also that, like, it was written at a time where racism was essentially acceptable. Right. You know, mm-hmm. like back when he wrote that book, that no one thought twice about that. No. It'd be like, yeah, you know, so. Yeah. However, like I said, I do have to address it. I mean, the Piccaninny tribe in print was not the Native Americans, um, but it was meant to be kind of a mishmash of lots of indigenous tribes from all over the world. So I'm going to shed a little light with a big, long quote here. The name Piccaninny 
is a variation of the Portuguese word pequenino, meaning tiny. It was widely used in the UK to describe the indigenous people in the Caribbean and Australia, and has come to be understood as an offensive term to classify any small, dark-skinned child living in a colonized country. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely British imperialism, like, well, we came and we stole these people, and aren't they just weird? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And here's our name that we're going to think of it, yeah. Uh, Song of the South is not on Disney. Yeah, Plus. That, there we go. You can't. The only reason we have it is because I ordered it from China. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's like a bootleg copy of it. Yeah. Because um, yeah. I, I know, I'm, I understand the time and it was written. Oh, um, yeah. I, I do really like the, um, just, I love the songs. I have to tell you, I anytime I hear them, I'll be singing them for the next week. <laughs> So it's one of those things. Yep. That is mm-hmm. also something that will no longer be available at Disney. They are yeah. going to discontinue the use of the music as well. Oh, wow. No zippity yeah. doo huh? I don't think so because I believe uh, it was problematic with racist origins, right, Laurel? Yeah, yeah, the whole thing is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, 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 I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but, uh, you know, now that we've talked about that, we may have to cancel Peter Pan. Yeah, I wonder, like, yeah, what they would do, you know, if they decided to update that at all, like, you know, how they would change. Would handle it. Yeah. I always wondered that myself. I mean, because it can very easily be done. It's just, yeah, if that would be something that they would take out completely or, I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud. I don't know why I am. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Well, there, I had to take us off on a tangent there and bring things down. Now I'm going to just go back to plain old weird. Barry's relationship with the Llewellyn Davies family, you know, Sylvia, her five boys, kept constant throughout the rest of his life. He was constantly having them over to his home. He would take them on vacations. And all of this was to the very much dislike of the boy's father. His mom went with? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. And here's where I'll mention that. While there is little evidence to suggest that Barry modeled Captain Hook after the boy's father (laughs) and put him on stage in front of London audiences, it is strange that it is traditional for the same actor to play both Captain Hook and Mr. Darling when it's presented on stage. He didn't come right out and say it, but Barry was known to add subtle digs at people in his writings with no explanation. So it is possible that a connection is correct or it could just be coincidence. (laughs) Could be, but I like, I like that connection. I think that's, I understand that uh, Mr. Llewellyn Davies was none too pleased with his boys hanging out with a grown man all the time. (laughs) But it paid off because, you know, he took care of them. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. I know. It's you're like, okay. Barry's relationship with the family was constant. And even after the boy's father died in 1907 and their mother, Sylvia, died in 1910. So here's these boys that are... Some of them are a little bit older, but, um, you know, they're still, they're now orphaned. However, what was to be done with the boys when they were orphaned also has a dash of controversy. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sylvia's will, their mom, their mom's will was handwritten. And before she died, Jimmy was able to transcribe a complete copy. In his version, these were Sylvia's wishes. What I would like would be if Jimmy would come to Mary and that the two together would be looking after the boys. Mary was the family nurse, kind of like the nanny. But what happened is Barry took this to mean that the boys would just come live with him, and through extensive effort on his part, this is what happened. 
Mary was kept out of it entirely, and I'm not sure it was at any small expense to Barry. Hmm. Laurel has her hand over her mouth. Why wouldn't you want a nanny? Um, I'm just thinking, like, why you wouldn't want extra help. Well, I, I don't... I think, yeah, the nanny lived on her own, so she, you know, would come in and work for the day and then go home at night. Sorry, I, I just realized I wasn't breathing for a long time, and, I, and then I was like, <laughs> oh, no, breathe, and then I thought... <laughs> oh, formulate words for your response because all I'm doing is just sitting here with my hand on my mouth. Um, that's okay. Okay, I'm just I'm just gonna hear this story. Still, so just gonna take it in, absorb it. Okay. I'm gonna add a little more to it and see if if we actually kill you with this one. <laughs> However, when uh, biographer Andrew Birkin wrote a biography about Barry, his research found the original will in Sylvia's handwriting. And this is how those lines were originally written. What I would like would be if Jenny would come to marry and that the two would be looking after the boys. Jenny was Sylvia's sister. Oh, oh my gosh. So Jimmy was not in it at all. It's a little bit of trickery. Uh-huh. It's legitimately impossible to know if Barry deliberately changed the will or if an agreement between Barry and Sylvia was done after the original was written. Which is possible, but... But... Without having them to talk to, it comes off as very, like, sneaky under the table, underhanded. Uh -huh. Like, I'm just going to change this. Yeah. Let's, let's also put it in the timeline, too. The father dies in 1907. Jimmy and Mary divorce in 1909. Sylvia dies in 1910. So it's just him alone with the boys. It's him alone with the boys. Don't feel great about it. <laughs> yeah don't feel great about it <laughs> and i hate saying that like i hate saying that like i don't know because in the off chance that i'm making assumptions where there are none to make but it's one of those things it's like that definitely reads as weird to me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yeah. you know it all smacks of michael jackson that's exactly where it's going with it. you know where his ranch is also named neverland uh-huh um yeah sure but is. you know in in interviews to his defense he was always like no i mean i'm just offering my home and i'm i'm comforting these children who who don't have as much you know i have a lot and they don't Are you talking and about michael jackson or barry yeah um <laughs> okay <laughs> so what is known is that barry housed them and cared for them until adulthood and barry died from pneumonia in, in 1937 and his estate was left to the boys that's a lame way to go yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was really critical of me. Like, oh, pneumonia? Really? Why was he killed by a tiger? <laughs> yeah, or a shark. Or like, I don't know, fell from a great height trying to fly. Like, something cool. Tried to stop a robbery and got shot. Yeah, man. <laughs> Took a bullet for one of the boys. I don't know. I got pneumonia. sick and it really went bad. Yeah, weak-ass lungs, bro. <laughs> it's because he stopped taking those walks. You gotta, gotta be active. Yeah, that's it. Now, the boys, though, after he died, did not live happily thereafter. Ooh. George Llewellyn Davies, who is said to be Barry's favorite, died in 1915, killed in action fighting in World War I. Oh, yeah. In 1921, Michael Llewellyn Davies drowned in what is suspected to be a suicide pact with his gay lover. Oh. Although that's just a rumor, but there's enough evidence that they're like, I'm pretty sure that happened. And on April 5th, 1960, Peter Llewellyn Davies, who was teased all his life for having the same first name as Barry's most popular hero, 
jumped in front of a train as it was pulling into a station in London's underground after a good night of drinking at the pub. His obituary emphasized the link to Peter Pan several times. Oh. <laughs> I'm trying to pull my skin off my face. You know what's even sad? Oh, you're probably you're probably going to say this. Are you going to talk about the voice actor to Peter Pan or no? Nope. Okay. So another sad thing. So Peter's just surrounded by tragedy, and yet Barry's curse continues. So the boy... The boy that plays Peter in the Disney, what, 1953 Peter yeah, Pan? Yeah, the voice actor, um, right? Okay. He, the voice actor looks just like Peter. Hold on, let me get you. Oh, yeah, I think I have seen that. Um, Bobby Driscoll, is that his name? That sounds oh, right, yeah. So he looks just like him. Laurel, you're going to be like, oh, shit, looks just like him. Can you see it? Oh, yeah. whoa. <laughs> eyebrows. So he was animated after him. Mm -hmm. So he had really bad acne i seem to remember oh and essentially what happens is is he never gets roles after peter pan and he dies a poor pauper and is buried in an unmarked grave somewhere in new york mm -hmm. and he dies young like in a dude it's so sad i was like that's the saddest shit i've ever heard acne and it just it's one of those things like barry barry's curse continues yep yep uh-huh he has a fatal touch <laughs> doesn't he just so to end this all out if you'd like to see something of a more gentler but nonetheless sad story told in live action, feel free to watch the 2004 film starring Johnny Depp, Finding Neverland, which tells the story about J.M. Barry and the Llewellyn Davies Boys, or the stage musical adaptation that premiered on Broadway in 2012. And to this day, a statue of Peter Pan stands in Kensington Gardens Park. Mm -hmm. Is it really? Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to have to go back and see it now. And that is the story of the premiere of Peter Pan. Oh, and all the sad things around it I mean it's just you start looking at some of that stuff and you go huh that's weird <laughs> yeah he's dressed up in his brother's clothes huh okay he wrote this Peter Pan book though and I'm, I'm okay with that you know it goes back to the whole argument about separating the art from the artist <laughs> right yeah true just like Michael Jackson yeah and we talked a little bit about MJ the musical on my last episode. So and and we're like, and people love that. That's still running on Broadway today. And and I mean, you've got to sit there and go, wait a minute, wasn't there this thing about him and kids? Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's um funny you should mention that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's so difficult. Like with some of them. I can hear in some of Woody Allen's stuff where it's like, I like to groom young women and, and uh, be the sexually virile little wimpy Jewish nerd that I've always been my entire life. But uh, on some others I go, yeah, their problematic life off screen is not reflective here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when you grow up, things aren't as uh, simple as you'd like them to be. You can't just put a stop around death. Uh, you know, like you can separate the art from the artist and still think that the artist is a total creep, but they gave us some great stuff. That's the one I have the hardest time with for a long time. My favorite movie was American beauty. Mm -hmm. And there's Kevin Spacey as a middle-aged man. Yeah. Realizing that he has sexual energy for a younger person and that his life isn't over yet. And then roll on 20 years later, 
a guy comes out and says, I was assaulted by Kevin Spacey and it, it wasn't oh, just, really. Oh, I uh-huh. didn't know this. Yeah. yeah. And that's why Kevin Spacey mm-hmm. is basically canceled now because mm-hmm. he never had, had come out as gay before. And then when this happened, he goes, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I have to fess up to it. I am gay and I'm going to take some personal time and just reflect on these things that I have done. And so he has not really done anything, but that's why he got kicked off a house of cards and made his weird response video to that. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's fine to be gay. It's maybe not okay to be a pedophile. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's the problem is to say, oh, well, I'm gay. I'm just going to say it. No, no, no. Like, like homosexuality does not equal predatory. And that's unfortunately something that people like to fling around. And it's like, no, no, no. (laughs) One does not equal the other. No, no, no. Deviancy is not a sexual preference. Amen to that. For Barry, though, like. He still gave us this wonderful thing. And, you know, it's something that mm-hmm. I'm from for Katie is like very fundamental to your growing up. And yeah, like, actually. And it helped you through bad times and, and stuff like that. So uh, I don't know. I just I just love talking about it and going, you know. So you do think he was a predator? No, I don't. Oh, you don't. I don't. You don't. OK, interesting. I, I think he I. I but all of the circumstances are wicked suspicious, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's weird because you're like, nothing happened, nothing happened. I'm like, okay, I get it. Because some people have no childhood. They want to continue living it. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, I'm like, there does have to be a line drawn. Like, you're an adult. And as adults, we, we grow into sexual maturity. It's who we are. We're mm-hmm. made to reproduce. So at a certain point, there is a line there. Yep. That it's yep. not okay to be necessarily into bed with children like tickling them it does cross a line yeah you know even yeah. if nothing happened i'm like it's still weird though it's still not okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know like i get it like maybe nothing did happen but still it's not healthy behavior i may have changed the will to have boys come live with me after their mother died but it was for their best interests I, you know, it's something that I, I hear in this and this is just my my two cents for what it's worth is it sounds like a child who was traumatized or had this you know huge event in his life of Mm -hmm. his brother's death and oh yeah seeing that happen and not knowing how to deal with that which is hard i think for any kid but especially Mm -hmm. in a time period in which you're looking at like social norms and gender norms of this is how you you know stiff upper lip keep calm and carry on that's sort of Mm -hmm. this british kind of like okay this is terrible and we're grieving but you know don't cry move on or you know that sort of yeah yeah, I, can, I can see a bit like, of that. I can see, like he's almost stuck in that in that way, and then therefore it's not played out very yeah. well. I'm not like excusing any of it, but it's just like maybe there's just that that early yeah. trauma or that early terrible thing that's happened. That's, to him. I agree. That's where I think a lot of that comes from, Laurel. I agree. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, in both cases, I suppose. Not that I keep meaning to draw a parallel, but mm-hmm. the closest one of this kind is like Michael Jackson. Yeah, he even said there was something. What was it? It was just something that the reason it made me think is he always said, I hate my nose. I hate my nose. I hate my nose. Come to find out his dad always made fun of him for having a big nose. So he Ooh. got all those surgeries. Yeah. Deep trauma. And then another one was, um, what did he say? Oh, it was an interview after Michael had passed and his dad was saying, oh, we've made all this money. We've made all these sales, blah, blah, blah. And the interviewer actually stopped and said, sir, you know, your son is dead, right? And like, Ooh. he was like, yeah, but like, 
oh. like, oh my God. <laughs> oh man. Like I was like, oh, so it was one of those things that made me think like the, what trauma does to us as humans and yeah, how sometimes I think it stops that. Yeah. I don't know, development maybe. Yeah, arrested if it's development. Not, maybe yeah. if it's not, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was just one of those things I was like, so he truly it's, became a man that never grew up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, wow. Listeners, yeah. Why, listen to Hightailing Through History for more psychology analysis. <laughs> Hop on our couch. We are not qualified in any way, shape, or form. You know, like, We will probably oh do more damage to you than you already have. Uh, right? Still torn about this one. But I think I'm swinging away from the weirdness and more on the side of the creation of something magical. Maybe I'm just a little sentimental that way, but I think we all could use some more magic and fantasy in our lives. Anyway, thank you so much to Laurel Rockle and Katie Wall of Hightailing Through History Podcast for being my guests on this episode. And if you're looking for more bizarre stories about history, put their show in your queue. You will not be disappointed. As for me, I'm going to be signing off. But before I do, I just have to say that I'm pretty excited for the next few episodes coming up. I've got a great slew of new material and some pretty exciting guests so please subscribe or follow the show wherever you're listening. I promise you won't want to miss it. So for now, this has been Aaron Odom signing off, and I will get another one out to you in two weeks, and I will see you at intermission.